0: Better Late Than Never, next installment of We've Been Had, the uh, the show where we discuss or even debate albums for your listening pleasure. I am Keith Pilly,
1: And I'm Chad Cook.
0: And uh, the deal here is that we take turns picking an album and then we, we both dig into it. Um, this time around, way back in February... <laughs> I uh, I suggested that we needed to put Gen X on trial with the singles soundtrack.
1: Yeah, uh, and I should mention that this is the first one of these we we're doing in person for ever. It seems like
0: it's insane. It's um, I mean since twenty nineteen. No, I think we did one in very early twenty twenty, like hmm. right before
1: COVID. It's kind of, kind of irresponsible of us, really. Well,
0: you know, we we didn't know. It was, it was a different era.
1: Just as a brief aside, did you uh, did you ever read the uh, Douglas Coupland book, Gen X?
0: You know, I did, and I wanted it to be profound, but I I don't I don't think I really got anything out of it.
1: Yeah, I I was not a fan. Uh-huh. I did like his book, Microsurfs. That's I don't the, know if you ever read that.
0: That's the one of his that I'll go to bat for. I totally agree. Like, I've read... I went through a stretch where, like, I really wanted to like him and read like a bunch of them, and that was the only one that. I, but I thought that was pretty good.
1: Yeah, it's kind of it's interesting because that's uh, not quite Gen X and not quite Millennials, but yeah, you know, whoever the whoever the you know kind of first wave programmers were.
0: And the weird thing is like that that game Minecraft, I think is. Is the game they're building in that book like this is Legos on your computer?
1: Yeah, interesting.
0: Anyway, <laughs> um,
1: literature literature portion of the show
0: overall. Yeah, the, uh, now that the period bell rings and it's on to music appreciation. Um, so yeah, tombstone information for the uh, the single soundtrack, released nineteen June of nineteen ninety two on Epic soundtracks with an X. Um, No real point listing the producer because it's a soundtrack. It's a bunch of different songs produced by a whole slew of people. Um, But if the album has a guiding spirit, it's Cameron Crowe, and we'll talk about him.
1: Terrifying.
0: (laughs) Um, I always like to give an album description at the top, and this one is pretty easy. This This is your basic grunge sampler with some outliers um, I think this is like you know how like they used to have in France they would have like the steel rod that was this is a meter and there'd be like the the weight that like this is a gram I feel like this album is like this is mainstream grunge
1: yeah it's kind of this or no alternative yeah um, the, two, uh, the two competing forces
0: the, the other 90s ubiquitous thing Uh, The one thing I wanted to throw in before we get to that exact thing is that, like, I don't think this album, like, I know it was sold as an album, and we all listened to it as an album, but it doesn't, like, work at all as a unified listening experience, you know, it just, I mean, like, it says singles on the front, and it it lives up to that.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it does feel like... You know, we do we do a couple songs, and then we do a ballad, and then we do a rock rock song, and it, it does feel a little bit squished together.
0: Oh yeah, I mean like, let's put let's put a couple of Paul Westerberg jams next to Alice in Chains because that's yeah.
1: yeah I don't I will speak more about that <laughs> when we get to it. Oh,
0: uh, but I you know so like to try to just set the context for this. I feel like this is a thing that just lands, you know, I don't know. The people who listen to the show, I know that most of them are our age. Um, I know we have some listeners that are younger. And I feel like this is going to land completely differently. Like, people our age are like, oh yeah, the fucking single soundtrack. I remember that thing. Um, if you're not our age, I don't know if you can relate to just how ubiquitous this damn thing was.
1: Yeah, and I think it was part of it was that people really liked the movie um you know i you know i was never a huge fan of the movie i guess but um
0: i would have been a booster back in the day and that that changed but
1: i uh it, it was i mean it was cool that it was one of the you know kind of first movies that that i had seen as a as kind of fledgling adult that that actually talked about music in terms yeah. of like you know, going to see Alice in Chains and the guys from Pearl Jam are in the fake band Citizen Dick. Yeah. So it's, you know, I mean, it has its moments. It's just kind of a, I don't know. It's just not, at least in my vision, that's not what adult life is really like. Totally. At least not for me.
0: Someone, uh, you know, I don't remember where I saw this. Somewhere when I was, like, reading up on people's takes on this album and the movie. Someone pointed out that the movie is Friends, like, yeah, know, before Friends was on the air, but it's like this—it's like young, attractive twenty-somethings who all almost all live next to each other and all go and hang out at a coffee shop, and um, I don't—I guess that's just that's the spirit of the '90s. Um, but I mean, just I don't know, the dominance of this thing in the in the early '90s is nuts. I I remember. In the summer of 1992 this guy in my high school was kind of a butthead, was like in my face, like, ha, you don't have the single soundtrack yet? You are lame. like I it just like it really felt like it was like de rigueur, like you had to own this.
1: Yeah, I mean like what other what other soundtracks could you use as a diss? Like nobody's nobody's like, oh you don't have the topol version of Fiddler on the roof? (laughs) Fuck you.
0: Well, remember the Crow soundtrack? Oh yes, that.
1: yes. I, I blocked that movie out of my memory. Yeah, I feel like that was one of those movies that I wanted to like really badly. Like yeah, I, I was sold on it, and then I watched it, and I was like, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this is for me. no
0: nah.
1: just I mean, just not my thing. Um, <sighs> but I do, uh, and I. I feel like I'm gonna shit on a lot of stuff that's on this album, but I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I think, just is is the first song uh, is an Alice in Chains song, which is is just always fascinating to me that they get lumped in with the like Seattle song. I mean, like they're from Seattle, no, and, I know and, they're and that that's as ge- far as it geographically, goes. but they're just they're not the like I don't know they're not the like Nirvana Pearl Jam. Melvin's kind of thing
0: yeah well I, so I mean I think part of that is that like this whole idea I don't know like sure cities have sounds and you know groups influence each other but like that gets so overhyped. I mean like you know Alice in Chains I, I don't know just not everyone when it gets down to it what they have distorted guitars, just like other bands. Wow, that's that's a unified sound.
1: I just it, to me it sounds like a like a slower version of like Iron Maiden or Dio or something. Yeah, like that. that's like a.
0: Well, I, yeah, I mean that's it. Always felt to me like Alice in Chains was kind of could have been branded as a metal band, like if they're you know if their label had just decided to the play them a little differently
1: and just as a side note I defy you to listen to the Dio song Holy Diver without snickering <laughs> it's impossible like it's just it it takes itself so seriously and it, it's like Holy Diver <laughs> did you not see
0: the sign on the on, in the yard on the way in that says in this house we respect Dio
1: <laughs> I did not but, damn it <laughs> oh
0: yeah, I don't know. I um I mean I guess to to get into Alice and in Chains a little bit more. Like I I don't I don't like them, you know, like like I'm not I don't wanna shit on them if, if people do like them, but they were just they were never for me. So like it was it was always weird like that this album starts off with this kinda this hostile intro and um you know, I don't wanna spoil anything here, but to me, this album is functionally a Paul Westerberg single with a lot of B-sides. Um, and so, like, like it's weird that it kicks off with the song that clashes the hardest with the Westerberg songs.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I I, I don't think I have the, as much negativity for Allison fans as you do, but and I think that actually, when I don't know if you remember that, for a while, MTV was doing like an unplugged series, mm-hmm. and I actually think the Alice in Chains unplugged is one of the better, I don't think I better saw. ones in the series. It's it's really good. It's uh, you know I think I think Alice in Chains kind of struggles sometimes with what it wants to be. Yeah.
0: I think I might like them better if I went back to it now. You know, like I just I they were outside of whatever my notion of purity was then. Um, you know, and, like, I think I appreciate weird guitar a lot more than I used to now. And, you know, I, I do like that, like, a lot of the guitar part for this song is just, like, just he's clearly just, like, letting his amp feed back and, like, doing it in a controlled way, and that, that's pretty cool, Like, I guess. But but it's still, I don't know. I Well, I was talking to... I think we've talked about this on the show, like the weird bit in um, Lynch's Lost Highway where, you know, people are at this like abstract jazz club and like Bill Pullman's playing like just out there abstract jazz and people are dancing to it. And like the scene in the movie where this Alice in Chains song appears is kind of the same thing where it's like an Alice in Chains show and, you know... People are trying to pick each other up in like the the least, you know.
1: Yeah, impossible, right? Yeah. It's like, it would be like going to a Dinosaur Jr. show and trying to have a conversation with someone. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's impossible. Like,
0: yeah.
1: Can't be done. I, I believe Bill Pullman was also in the movie Singles, so. He
0: was uh, as like an incredibly creepy. Yeah, plastic
1: surgeon. Yeah. Yeah. With so no boundaries. You've, you know, you've sort of hit on a, a, like some kind of. Weird Pullman synthesis. The, the
0: unified. Okay, so one thing I do appreciate about the Bill Pullman scene in the movie is that um, like this was like one of the very first like noticing things in set design in movies is that you know he's the doctor who does breast augmentations and his office has a bunch of these like lamps on the walls that just look like breasts and like they've got like I don't know. They've got, like, little, like, pink, like, nipple washers in the middle. And... I mean,
1: you stick to what you're good at.
0: Yeah, you know. Exactly. If you're
1: running a country western bar, you know, <laughs> you don't put a bunch of Art Deco shit up. That's
0: right. Unless you're running a uh, western swing bar. Ooh. You know, then you do that. <laughs> Adam, do you want to step back a second and just talk about the... Phenomenon of Cameron Crowe and the movie. Um, you know, because like this whole thing, like it exists. Excuse me. This whole thing is what it is just because Cameron Crowe was like, I like the music of Seattle and I'm going to collect the yeah, best I mean, of it. Cameron
1: Crowe is an interesting person in terms of like force of will. Yeah. Uh, you know, like getting a job with Rolling Stone when he was a teenager and kind of. I just, and I don't know if this is probably not fair, but it's a little frustrating to me that like my entire generation has to be interpreted through, you know, Cameron Crowe and John Hughes movies. Yeah. Like I just that that's just like kind of a bridge too far for me. Yeah. It's not,
0: you know, like it's this weird thing. Like it's a very cool thing to have started out as this like precocious music journalist, and like he had a a run of making, you know, some good, some kind of shitty movies. But, like, I don't know. Like, most of those movies don't hold up that well, and then they just kind of got worse and worse. Um, You know, I mean, this is a movie, like, I, when it came out, I would have been like, the soundtrack is good and the movie is good. And, you know, like, I...
1: I mean, the, it's not a good the, movie. The first, the first one is maybe a defensible position. Um, I think in in the time era, maybe the movie was a defensible position. It just doesn't. I don't know that it really holds up now. If you were to rewatch, and I did not rewatch it for this,
0: yeah, I rewatched it a while ago, but
1: because I, you know, like the last time I saw it, I thought it was terrible.
0: And I... Yeah, but so you know. So the way I understand it, part of the reason. So, if I understand the sequence of events right, Crow had written a screenplay, um, and it was going to be set in Seattle. And then the dude from, as that was going on, the dude from Mother Love Bone died. Yeah. And the you know Seattle music community kind of rallied around him, and everyone was like, ah, oh, Seattle, we gotta, we gotta fly the flag. And like swept up in that, I believe Crow was like, oh, okay then, this you know, the soundtrack to my movie is going to be, like, a love letter to Seattle. And, like, and that's not a terrible mission, but then he's got this other weird thing where the replacements break up at the same time, and, you know, he's got connections, so he's like, I will do a love letter to Seattle, but I will also give Paul Westerberg, you know, the the venue to, like, move on from the replacements. Um, And that just makes the whole thing... Weird because it you know you've got like like the Westerberg songs were are by far the most prominent in the movie and like outtakes from them keep kind of playing through the movie but then it sits next to all this other stuff that doesn't match at all and I don't know it's it's weird it yeah. it gets weirder as I get older.
1: I mean I I do think that the the death of Andrew Wood was kind of a touchstone for all of the Seattle artists yeah. like it it does seem to be a a point that really. Which, I mean, is totally understandable. I mean, when you're in your 20s and one of your good friends dies of an overdose, it's probably, it's pretty significant. It just, it really, it shaped a lot of the, you know, it's kind of, you you wouldn't, you don't have Pearl Jam if that happened. It doesn't happen. Yeah. You don't have uh, Temple of the Dog. You know, it's just a, it, it was a really, and it, I mean, it is sad to just kind of look back and see how many people on this album have passed away. Yeah. Um, you know, from Lane Staley to Chris Cornell to Andrew Wood. Um, Mike Starr, I think, was the original drummer for Allison Chan has also passed away. I mean, it just is a, it's really, really sad. Yeah. But, I will say that uh, the second song, Breath, There are a lot of good Pearl Jam songs. This is not one of them.
0: That's, you know, it's... So my understanding is that the two Pearl Jam songs that are on here were, like, among the first they recorded and that they were, you know, that they were recording ten as this movie was being shot. So it's all, like, you know, the stuff you have here is, like, the earliest Pearl Jam. And, like, it's nuts that, like, State of Love and Trust, like, it's kind of a consensus, like, yeah, that's a good... good breath, Breath is not... It's, like...
1: I just I don't know how that made it onto the album. I mean mm-hmm. it. It just is. It. It. You know what it reminds me of is, at one point during the Uncle Tupelo albums, you said that said something along the lines of, Jay Farrar is like listening to uh, listening to a dude with an acoustic reading out of Mother Jones. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like this is like, Eddie Vedder mumble whining over an alternative, back, backing band.
0: Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> Earlier today, like, I was talking to Rebecca about, you know, this album, and uh, I, you know, I was like, I don't know, somehow we got talking about the Pearl Jam song, and I'm like, no, there are two Pearl Jam songs, and she's like, what does the other one sound like? Um, And so I was trying to, like, sing Breath, but I don't know the words, so I was just, like, Swedish chefing it.
1: Yeah, well, I
0: think he is, too. Yeah, exactly. Like, it doesn't, there's no difference (laughs) Uh, I, you know, another thing, that, like, so, I, listening to Breath today, like, I, it did help me realize, like, one of the key elements of Pearl Jam that I always knew was there but had never twigged to. Like, Jeff Ament does have this really distinctive bass sound. I don't know if he's playing a fretless or what, but he, like, like all Pearl Jam bass has the same, like, like, slidey quality to it that, like... I, you know, I guess, like, it's tough out there for a bass player to...
1: Yeah, I mean, unless you're Jaco Pastorius or Les Claypool or someone, it's, yeah. it's hard to... But, so just for the non-musician, uh, what does a fretless bass give you?
0: The ability to slide around, I guess. You know, so like, frets, frets are nice because then as long as you put your finger anywhere between the two frets, you're going to sound the same note. If it's fretless, it's just wherever your finger is, that's the note. And so you have to be really precise in where you put your finger if you want to get the right note. But then you can also do a lot more like... You know, just slide up and down and get all the space in between the notes.
1: It's like the trombone, but for bass. Yeah, same. Interesting.
0: Okay. got Okay. Everything's good. Um... Yeah, I don't know, Pearl Jam.
1: Yeah, so I just don't, I don't get why that song was included. Um, I think it's all they had. I think, oh. I think
0: they literally like they hadn't recorded anything else yet.
1: So how? Did, so I guess then, how does State of Love and Trust not end up on ten?
0: I think because it was tied up in rights.
1: Oh, for this. Yeah. Huh? Because I mean, that, that it's definitely a it's definitely a great song. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just weird because you go from. You know like slow metal song to I don't even know what you call breath to like a Chris Cornell
0: ballad which is pretty good like that's one that I've really kind of changed my feelings about um, you know that was always a skip for me when I was a kid and now I hear it and I'm like yeah you know this is a good use of like the mellow side of Chris Cornell
1: yeah, he does a like kind of a cool thing with his voice, and he does it actually on the Soundgarden song later too, where he kind of where he, he hits the line "I'm lost behind" and he yeah. kind of like modulates his voice yeah. when he says "behind," so it's kind of yeah, it has this cool kind of effect. I mean, it is a little difficult for me to listen to a Chris Cornell ballad, just knowing you know knowing what we know now about Chris Cornell and sort of the pain he was in. Yeah. It's a uh, it's a little it's a little hard and I I don't know about you but I I just never was able to jump on the Soundgarden bandwagon.
0: I loved Superunknown when it when it came out. Um, and then like I could never really take it further than that. But like that album,
1: the even <laughs> Spoonman.
0: I loved I liked Spoonman. Yeah, I yeah. I was like that was there was like this brief window where like I. Opened the door and looked into the world of being like a funky time signatures guy. And you know, like right then I was like, Ooh, Spoon Man, it's in 7 4 or whatever. G- g- gimme. Um, no, like, I don't know, that, that's a good album. The first album on Super Unknown, or first song on Super Unknown, is like, has been one of my go to running jams for 10 years or so.
1: Yeah, I, I, so I bought Super Unknown, you know, because I grew up in the 90s. Yeah. And I think MTV just played Black Hole Sun into the ground. They,
0: they did beat the shit out of that song.
1: I don't know, I just it never connected with me the same way that the other that, you know, Nirvana Bleach or Nevermind or Incesticide did or Pearl Jam Verses, or even Siamese Dream. Like those I don't know, those just all resonated with me more than
0: I I, I I actually, it, it, at the time, I liked Super Unknown more than most of those albums, except maybe for Versus. You know, just like, I, I, what I think it was, was I had like a terrible job, that that was the summer that I was a night shift janitor at a nuclear power plant, and like, Super Unknown was just like the right music to hear yeah. when you we were going to clean toilets.
1: Just, um, I, yeah, I mean, I, and I don't hate it. I just don't think I like it as much as, I mean, it's not that big a problem now, but, yeah. you know, in the 90s. You
0: find yourself shunned by Yeah, it.
1: in the night, in the, you know, mid 90s, it was like, you don't like, you know, you don't like Soundgarden? What are you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> fucking poser.
1: <Yeah. sighs> Turn in your flannel.
0: <laughs> so the funny thing is to flip this around. The one Soundgarden tune on this album, I actually don't like much at all. Like, I just think it's like replacement level Soundgarden.
1: I actually thought that sounded even more metal than the <laughs> than the uh, Allison Chain
0: Yeah, song. I see where you're coming from. That's uh, uh, you're not wrong.
1: I mean, I I was surprised at like the you know kind of like if you had told me that was a. Uh, Trickster song or something. I would, I would, I would have bought that.
0: So like not just metal, but like that specific kind of like '90s, like just ass metal.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: I know what you mean. Um, so I, my notes are like not in running order, oh, and but uh, I, I feel like we have to have. You have to have passed by one of the Westerberg
1: songs. Uh, first one is after the Chris Cornell ballad is Dick's uh-huh. Dyslexic Heart.
0: So let's. Yeah, are you in the mood to talk, yeah. Westerberg? Yeah. Yeah. What, I what mean,
1: you? I. I think it's a weird transition from kind of a downer ballad. Absolutely, to a, it is. To Jesus a super poppy like Paul Westerberg song. Yeah. Um, it and, makes no sense when you listen. And I mean, I guess what, so. And, and I, I wrote this in here that I'm a little embarrassed that this is this is like my first introduction to Paul Westerberg, Yeah. because um, you know I grew up in the Minneapolis suburbs and all we had was classic rock. <laughs> but I mean, a, a typical Westerberg, like his voice and writing is really good, but the production on this just drives me nuts. It
0: ain't great. But, you know, it's the same. It's kind of the same bad production as All Shook Down. Yeah. And then as 14 songs. Right.
1: Yeah. And I I guess I like my Westerberg either replacements era or, you know, like what he gets to later when he records, like, stereo mono. Yeah. And it's just, like, super stripped down. Yeah. Like, that's. Like, I think that's where Westerberg shines. This is just. I mean, it's a really catchy song, but it's. You know, it's uh, it's just, it's just a, it's a real, it's like a pop song, like it it's,
0: is. Excuse me. Well, that was that Bob Moore um, replacements book, the Trouble Boys. Like one of the weirdest things from that that just blew my mind was reading about, like I had been in, the stuff I had projected onto Westerberg's solo career at that point was like completely backwards. Where I, I thought that he was intentionally writing, like, difficult, quirky stuff just to be like, fuck you, Market." I'm, I'm, I'm Paul Westerberg. I'm writing my own shit. You know, I'm saying things my weird way. And, like, to read that, like, no, this was him trying to, like, cross over and then being disappointed when it wouldn't and then trying, you know, like, I, I, it's, just, it's weird to me because, like, I really like Dyslexic Heart. Um, and I, I totally see where you're coming from, saying that it sounds like a pop song. But it it sounds like a pop song from like 1970. Yeah, you know? no, it doesn't sound like something that was popular in 1992, or conceivably could have been popular. In and it's got
1: like it's got really good lyrics. I just, I don't know, for some, I just that's not my favorite Westerner. Like, yeah. like I thought when I got stereo mono, I'm like this is amazing. This is like, you know, this is like a guy recording an album, a great album in his bathroom. Yeah,
0: that is a great fucking album. Yeah,
1: and I just, uh, I was, but I think, I mean, even if you look at the, if you look at, like, Husker Do, when they recorded Candy Apple Grey, there's a, there's an element of the production where they were clearly trying to reach a broader audience. Yeah, yeah. Like, it doesn't have the same
0: edge. No, it sounds like Ass like it's just it's got you know it's got this layer of gloss on it that totally takes away the the edge that
1: no I mean I just wonder if that was the like that was the production aesthetic maybe
0: absolutely that's you know and I I don't think with both Husker Du and the replacements and then Westerberg I don't think it's an accident that when they sign the majors and start working with pro produce you know like high level pro producers like that's when the production gets out of hand and takes things over i don't know i like yeah i hate the production i hate the way dyslexic Heart and waiting for somebody are put it together but i can't not love these songs like you know i for me this was basically my way in for westerberg too like i knew of the replacements but i hated them because i like i had i was like in like R.E.M. superfan mode and was like, they said mean things about the replacements, blah. but I ended up seeing Westerberg touring, like he was basically touring these songs and then a bunch of stuff that became 14 songs playing in a bowling alley in Omaha. was it the Ranch Bowl? It was the Ranch Bowl and it was you know it was just such a great show that like i i went in being like well i guess i'll see this guy since everyone says he's great and you know came out and just like oh my god
1: the uh my college roommate went to something like five or six helmet shows oh, <laughs> Jesus. <the> Ridge Bowl. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that must have been insanely loud I, I like. I love that Omaha's best music venue was a bowling. Yeah, That's, hey, I mean it's it's,
1: it's awesome. Our best music venue is a bus station. That's so. right. It's uh yeah, and and so I mean I, I just feel like yeah, I feel like the if if they would have instead of releasing the if they would have released just if they would have released these two songs produced like. You know, I don't know uh, an early replacements album. I think it would have actually crossed over more effectively than yeah. than trying to use the make them more you know kind of pop friendly.
0: Yeah, I don't know if this is true. Someone was telling me today that um excuse me that Crow had asked Westerberg to write like an entire albums worth of stuff that would be, you know, scattered throughout. I don't know if this was, like, in conflict with the idea of we'll make it the Seattle sampler or... But supposedly Westerberg was supposed to turn in a shitload more material and everything got rejected except these two songs. Um, but then he, like, you know, walked away with this huge kill fee for not having his stuff used. And and if that's true, that, that seems very on brand
1: Yeah, uh, can we talk about the Battle of Evermore?
0: Yeah, let's talk about the Battle of Evermore.
1: So let me just let me just lay the stage for you. You got two people who are in heart, yep. right? The people that sang Barracuda. Yeah,
0: which is basically a Led Zeppelin song.
1: And you pick you're going to do a you're going to do a Led Zeppelin cover, right? You don't pick Black Dog, Cashmere. <laughs> you know, you don't pick something that rocks. You pick the most acoustic, finger-picky song in their catalog—the the one
0: that even Zeppelin fans <laughs> skip. <laughs> I was so conflicted by by exactly that when I was a kid because it was just like, you know, like uh, like, like Led Zeppelin seemed like the basis of everything, and so like. Fucking it, yo! Know, great, yeah. There's some Zeppelin representation on this album, as there should be, but but is there? Like, <laughs> why this? Is this a monkey's paw wish?
1: <laughs> I just can't. I can't think. I'm trying to. Like, was it? Is a song in the movie, and they couldn't get the rights to the Led Zeppelin version, and they thought it would be cheaper to have no, these people record I don't think it. So,
0: I, well, so you you know that. Cameron Crowe was married to Nancy Wilson, right? I
1: didn't know that. That yes. makes sense. Okay. Yes,
0: that that unlocks it.
1: Even worse then, because clearly he has access to the full heart catalog. Fuck, yeah, like, just put Barracuda on her.
0: <laughs> right. <sighs> but the, I mean, yeah, you're right. Like it would have been. Everyone would have come out happy. I I, I mean, I guess it it must come down to just Nancy Wilson and Ann Wilson must just really like playing this song. Like, uh, you know, like you have to assume they would have had their pick. Like, anything they chose to perform, uh, if Crow, I I don't know.
1: I mean, they chose this. Yeah, I mean, I. I mean one can only assume that their next move is a song uh, an album song for song cover of coda that's the only <laughs> thing that makes sense like
0: i do think coda has so i think wearing and tearing is like up there with the best zeppelin songs so like
1: that album is just a skip fest for me yeah it's, like, it's nope it's,
0: <laughs> it's like two maybe three killer and then all filler um, so one thing with 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 Zeppelin though, so like I did like sincerely at the time think like Led Zeppelin is you know the underpinning of all music and you know it is only fitting that this soundtrack have some Zeppelin representation. The weird thing is that like that sentiment is explicitly in the movie. There's like a part where Matt Dillon's character is being all wistful and he's like, "Who is gonna write?" The new Misty Mountain Hop for our generation.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe one of the blues singers that Zeppelin stole the songs <laughs> from.
0: Harsh. I, uh,
1: yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I just, there, and there are legitimately a ton, <laughs> a fuck ton of really good Love Zeppelin songs. Uh? And it just baffles me that this is the one they come up with. <sighs>
0: Well, so here's the one thing I can think of. If you are the Wilson sisters and you want to do a Zeppelin song, and you both want to sing, there aren't that many Zeppelin songs that are duets. And this one does have two parts. Trade off verses. I know. I'm. I, I'm. <laughs> I'm just trying to. Find, trying. To, I'm trying to meet him halfway.
1: <laughs> it's like. It's like going to a pet store and saying, "Oh, you both want, you, you can't share this. You can't share this adorable puppy. You get two turtles." <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just. I mean, yeah, it's equitable, but it's shitty.
0: <laughs> so, so I'm guessing the song is a perennial skip for
1: <laughs> you. <laughs> it's it's a skip and it's like an angry <laughs> skip
0: it's a skip with your middle finger oh man i want to take a quick yeah break. all right we uh we're back um chad you look kind of uncomfortable over there in your crown of thorns
1: yeah, so i've been busy uh busy working on the french quarter <laughs> Chloe don't I mean, Andrew Wood did have a very high voice. Like he, he was and able to he hit, did. hit some notes that I'm not able to to hit. I feel like, uh, at least in the circles that I traveled in the mid '90s, uh, uh, Mother Love Bone was kind of a was kind of a a low key hip thing to be into.
0: I don't think there was anything low key about it. I think that was, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. So it's a tough thing. where, like. Clearly, he was... Clearly, the people in the Seattle music scene loved the guy. You know, clearly, his death meant a lot to a lot of people. And, like, I don't want to shit on that at all. But at the same time, like, the the weird, like, just requirement that you revere Mother Lovebone back then. Like, I I, I think that's the... The nakedest emperor situation I have ever lived through musically. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I would like, I tried to will myself to love that album, but like, it just, it is not for me. And if, if anyone listening likes it, I'm sincerely happy for you, but like, it ain't for me.
1: It was, it was kind of the gravity's rainbow, though, I feel like, of, of CDs, it might have even been a double CD, yeah,
0: where it was, it was like
1: everyone was into it, but nobody listened to it apart yeah. from this song. Yeah, where it was like, it was like, oh yeah, do you you like uh, Pearl Jam? You really like Mother Love Bone? Yeah, they are like what? Oh, like what songs you like? And they would always name this one. That was and that was it. There was no yeah. second.
0: I remember there was like there was one song on there that I remember just feeling like an idiot. Like, so on the Mother Love Bone album, there's a song called, like, Through Fade Away, I think. And the chorus was like, She's my something. She's my blah, blah, blah. She's my Mahatma Gandhi. And I remember, like, I played that song, and, like, playing it, I'm like, I'm really cool. I'm playing Mother Love Bone on college radio. And then, like, I got done and I'm like, I don't think that chorus is okay. Like, I, I, that ain't... That ain't that ain't right, like.
1: It's like what was the what was the band that did the Va- Valerie Plame song? Oh, the Decembrist. The Decemberists, yes. I, I'm like, okay, we've we've just entered parody territory.
0: <laughs> <now>. like, yeah. <sighs> so Chloe dancer crown of thorns. I I don't know. I I just I again. I'm not being fair. Uh, I know they have sincere fans and I'm glad for those people there's a band that they like but for me like just no Mother Love Bone work has ever been able to live up to this myth that's, that's up there
1: I mean I think it I think a lot of it is that people like Pearl Jam and yeah. Jeff Amet and Stone Gossard were in Mother Love Bone so you know, it, yeah, but- I, I know it's weird I just think it—it's one of those things that has just sort of taken on—taken on a life of its own. Yeah. Where, like, do you remember that—that CD that came out that was the Mike Watt CD? Ball Hogger Tugger. Yes. Yeah. Where that was like for a brief second, that was like the the hipster CD to have. Yeah. And you'd have all these people lecturing you about, "What a genius Mike Watt is." And I mean he he is an interesting guy but that album is objectively terrible.
0: I so the only the only song from that that has any presence in my head at all is the the Eddie Vedder against the 70s one. That song is a fucking jam. Like
1: I will have to check it out. That, that is that
0: stone is. cold like like I that is a that's still frequently on playlists. I think
1: i think for me a lot of this ends up being you know i don't like to be bullied yeah. <laughs> with with my music yeah and like i don't like uh i don't like it when people trying to force things on me, which i probably well, totally do to people all the time uh, but, you know uh,
0: especially if you're not aware of that dynamic it's tough not to do it but so i mean that that's like with mother love bone and kind of with the singles soundtrack and kind of with grunge like It is weird how there's like this just river of peer pressure. And I think like one of the great things about getting older is you step out of the river. But like if you're not aware you're in it, like just so much of, I don't know, so much music is just dictated to you. And like, like this, you know, on two levels here, like Mother Love Bone was just presented as like if you're Hep you've got to be into right. that and you know if you're less hep but still more hep than people just listening to the radio you've got to be just on board with the single soundtrack and like that was yeah
1: so 1992 i guess i don't like litmus tests yeah that sort of you know cool or not cool
0: and to be honest, so i on the internet i rail a lot more than i should against um the actually pretty good radio station that we have in Minneapolis, The Current. I thought you were going to say B96. (laughs) They can do no wrong. Uh, So, like, The Current, yeah, The Current is a good radio station, but, like, I get really queasy at the way that they, like, I, I don't think this is intentional. I think this is just, like, a cultural construct. But they kind of function as this also, like, fire hose of musical peer pressure where you know, this month they're into Low Cut county, and like, oh, you don't like Low Cut county? Well, what the fuck's wrong with you? You know, and then, no, this month they like Hippocampus. And oh, you don't like Hippocampus? Well, what the fuck's wrong with you?
1: It does. With great power comes great responsibility. You know? They, They do sort of wield that sword a little bit as the cool kids in town.
0: Yeah. Um... Would you say that they are overblown?
1: <laughs> uh, I would say that. Is that the name of the? I think that's the Mudhoney. The Mudhoney.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not totally just adrift from Running Order. Not
1: know? the Birth Ritual, which is the Soundgarden. Uh, you
0: know, we, we've already we've covered Soundgarden. Like, do you have more to say about? No, uh,
1: we've actually already covered Pearl Jam too. So that so overblown is, is good. Um, you know, like. Uh, Mud is just one of those bands that I've always, I've always meant to check out, um, and candidly, I've never gotten around to it.
0: I, so I, I'm gonna, damn Mud Honey with faint praise here. Like I, I, I like this song. Um, I think it's fine. It's like, if you were plugged into a local scene, this is like. A song you would get from like the above-average local scene guy, local scene act. Like I think like if this soundtrack existed for Minneapolis in the '80s, and so if someone was like, "I'm gonna make a soundtrack that's everything that's happening in Minneapolis," that's a love letter to Minneapolis in 1985, and you know, and we have some Prince songs, and we have some Husker Du songs, and we have some Replacement songs. Overblown by Mudhoney's equivalent would be like whatever Soul Asylum had on that theoretical album like that's you know like it's good it, It's not it, it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's above average, but it's not
1: it's Yeah, not. I mean, I think that's it and I I see looking since I'm at Keith's house and I have this book too I see the. Michael Azerod, our band be your life.
0: Which is a great ass book. It's a
1: very good book, um, and there is a chapter on mud honey, um, which is a really interesting because it's. Uh, but the part about mud honey isn't the interesting part. The part is about <laughs> sub pop is the interesting part of that. Chapter. Yeah,
0: yeah. I sub pop in general. It was a thing that. I kind of came across in my, you know, just reading about all this that I wanted to mention and couldn't figure out how you've given me an opening. That's right.
1: Um, opening doors.
0: The, uh, so do you know about the thing where in the early 90s, you know, like as Seattle started to blow up, like right as this soundtrack came out and like part of this, the Times wanted to do like a lifestyle story about, you know, the exciting new music coming from Seattle. And so they called Sub Pop to ask them about grunge. And this woman who was just working at Sub Pop made up, like, a grunge le- lexicon <laughs> just, like, a bunch of, like, totally bullshit.
1: This and, is my hero.
0: And they just, like, swallowed it and printed it. And it's it's it's, all, it's, just, it's awesome. Like, because she's making up, like, just limbs. like, something about hanging on the flippity-flop means something. <laughs> I, uh, I wish I had written down her name because, like, yeah, this is like this is a hero
1: of the culture. That woman should have a statue. Yes. Uh, I mean, at a minimum, <laughs> probably in elementary school.
0: Oh. <laughs> so the the two things circling back, the two other things I've got to say about Mud Honey. I, when this album first came out, you know, through the end of high school to the beginning of college, I somehow did not understand the pronunciation of the band's name and thought it was Mudhoney.
1: (laughs) That's that's even funnier. It's like the guy from Police Academy. Yeah,
0: exactly. I think that's where I got it. Um, The the other thing, like, you know, if I was kind of mildly shitting on them for, you know, just being a little bit above average, uh, the, 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 the title of the song and, like, all of the vibe within it is overblown. So, like... I think they know, and and I love them for that. Like, that's legit.
1: I mean, I, I would if if my band was named Mud Honey, all the songs would also be named Mud Honey. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and I, I mean, I, I guess too, like, being an above-average band in the local scene is a pretty good goal. Like, that's that's not uh, that, that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, you know, it only becomes sneeze-worthy if it's you know, I don't know if it's part of this, like, thing that's like, this is a generational statement, and, you know, no. It's just a bunch of music, and some of it's okay, and some of it's not. Oh, excuse me. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, so that that brings us to uh, the second Westerbrook track.
0: Which I think is a jam. Like... Production's not great. but So I, there's this weird thing where the two Westerberg tracks are kind of the same song. They're both just like the same FGC riff, or I think it's FCG. Um You know, the timing's a little different, but it, it's the same thing. But it comes together a little better with Waiting for Somebody.
1: I mean, for me, I guess Waiting for Somebody is sort of like that's just sort of the vibe that a lot of the good replacement songs have is yeah the, like it just sort of fits in that wheelhouse of you know like here comes a regular yeah or um, you know Skyway or something like that they just have that like they have that sort of like dissatisfied yeah. yearning or I, I guess unsatisfied would probably be the best example <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah uh, but you know they kind of it, it just hits that note of like Kind of what the replacements songs are about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Dyslexic Heart does too, but it's just, it's a little more nuanced than.
0: Well, and Dyslexic Heart is a little precious where it's got all the like wordplay of like, my heart could use some glasses. And Waiting for Somebody is more like.
1: Yeah, it's a little more straightforward.
0: Yeah. Uh, Oops. It's funny to me how. So, like, if you are speaking. You know even sloppy minnesota accented standard english you want to pronounce it waiting for somebody but like in westerberg delivery it sounds wrong to do it any other way than waiting for somebody yeah and i don't know the man the man takes the language to strange new places
1: um so this is an aside but uh they for those listeners who are not from minneapolis they had a Replacements reunion concert they had the the concerts at Midway Stadium where the Saints used to play and uh, I, I'm i standing there complete stranger Next to me Taps me in the arm and says I'm gonna smoke this joint when they play Skyway <laughs> <laughs> Now great sounds fantastic and I look over the next song, and he's lighting the giant, and I'm like, "Do I tell him that this is not Skyway? <laughs> like, am I this guy? Like, what? What is my responsibility here? How committed am I am to this? To this guy?" So, how did you play it? I just let him roll with it, you yeah. know. Like, the man thinks it's Skyway. Oh,
0: you know. Okay, that reminds me of two things. One of them is like I have never felt more like a fucking dust-covered skeleton. Then the time <sighs> fucking 10 years ago, which is terrifying, when I was working at a local college and had a student worker working for me. And she was really excited because she had just heard the song on The Current. Um, she had never heard before and she was really excited by the great new song about Minneapolis that Jerry, Jeremy Messersmith had written called Skyway.
1: <laughs> I didn't know you did a cover of that song. I,
0: I didn't either until then. And then, you know, she said that, and I just you know, turned into the dude at the end of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, you
1: just, just melted into a husk.
0: I, I don't think I even told her. I think it was kind of the same. I'm just like, you know, she's she's enjoying this. So, the other, thing, so the other thing that that reminds me of, though, is... So I was at that show, too. Um,
1: Keith was actually probably on the other side of the guy. who tapped me on the shoulder.
0: Yeah. I, well, I was trying to remember. I, I don't remember. V- but um, the weird thing is that when I saw Westerberg at the Ranch Bowl... <laughs> Um, it was the same band, except the only difference was Tommy Stinson was on bass in St. Paul. So it's kind of wild to me that I saw, like, the post-replacements band in 92, and then he has the same guys, but with Tommy, you know, Tommy playing bass makes it the replacements. Um,
1: yeah, that is strange, because, like, as far as I know, Chris Mars is still alive. Yeah, he's still around. So He's a I mean, painter. He could be... <laughs> He could have played drums.
0: I don't, yeah, I think he's, I think he's pretty solidly like, yeah, fuck the drums.
1: And probably also fuck the rest of the replacements, I guess, but.
0: I don't remember if that was before Slim Dunlap had, like, I know he's not doing that well now.
1: No, he wasn't doing that well then either, because they mentioned it. Okay. Um, He was, I think he just had a stroke, maybe. yeah. I saw him on Twitter it was just his birthday, though. Really? Yeah, a couple days ago. Man, I like Slim done that. I do, too. Went to his daughter's wedding reception. <laughs> Accidentally. <laughs>
0: Still. That's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that as cool as a completely out of place Jimi Hendrix? <laughs>
1: yeah, and so just, just after I'd calmed down over the little Ed Zeppelin kerfuffle they and I mean I I legitimately really like Jimi Hendrix
0: of course he rules
1: but there are some peaks and valleys with Jimi (laughs) Hendrix right like we we can all acknowledge this that like it's not all gold it's being mine (laughs) and out of the repository the universe of Jimi Hendrix songs we come up with this one yeah Uh, not the slight return version of Voodoo Child you know All Along the Watchtower, which I know is a cover, but this is what we come up with.
0: I just, I I mean, like, so this only makes sense. Well, no, that's not true. I was going to say that this song's presence only makes sense um, if you look at the whole thing as purely just like a Seattle, you know, tourism department Musical sampler brochure like look at the many fun things. Yeah, did I mention that we we produced Jimi Hendrix the um, And I think that's 90% of what's going on I this does show up in the movie like in a way that makes more sense than a lot of the other
1: Is that where they go visit his grave is that the
0: no, it's um Kyra Sedgwick and the Idiot with the Super Train are just listening to records and she puts on this record and is like oh I've always loved this record and so you know like in, in, in that sense like it makes sense it's an older song she's had time to always love it um, but it's still like it, it doesn't make any fucking sense if you're going to sit down and listen to this as an album
1: I guess I had forgotten that one of the gags in that movie is that the guy that's really into Xavier McDaniel Oh, the Exorcist,
0: yes. Which, like, uh, so to me, like, the, the point of that, the point where that movie like scrapes the bottom <laughs> and just keeps on scraping, is when he and Kyra Sedgwick are having sex, and Xavier McDaniel appears in his mind. Uh,
1: yeah. That's and, like,
0: what the fuck? What it's,
1: the fuck? It, it's just. It's such a. It's. I actually kind of think that's hilarious, but, but I have a different take on that because I—I <laughs>
0: well, think it's hilarious, but not in the way they meant it to <laughs> be. Like,
1: like, who the hell knows who Xavier McDaniel is? In you know, like, I mean, he, he was yeah, he was like a. It's like having Rick Mahorn or somebody make a cameo. <laughs> it's like he's kind of just kind of an obscure player. Yeah, if nothing else,
0: if nothing else, you have just like mega dated your movie. Like to a way that will you know, will make it like like that joke is incomprehensible to anyone who's even like five years younger than us.
1: Yeah. No, it's like it's just like, okay, who is and I guess this is like pre Sean Kemp era. Super Jesus, Sonic. it is so yeah. it's maybe just pre probably but you know it, it just that's just I don't know <laughs> I, I, I find that kind of adorable personally
0: <laughs> fair enough um,
1: but yes that I just again if you're playing a Jimi Hendrix record like this is the premise of the movie how is this the song that you come up with <gasps> The... I, f- I feel like it's somebody saying, well we're not gonna we're gonna show that we're true fans and go with the
0: deep, <laughs> go with the deep. I bet you're right.
1: <laughs> it's, oh. a, it's like you can go too deep. You know, yeah? like it's <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oh, I think you were right.
1: And uh, Keith is going to monologue for twenty-five minutes about the screaming trees. Go.
0: So okay, here's the thing. I have a note here, and I will stand by this. I will I will stand on your uh, coffee table in my cowboy boots and say (laughs) that uh, I Nearly Lost You by the Screaming Trees is the sleeper jam of this album. Like, it's not great. It's not, you know, it's not pantheon-level music, but it's pretty good.
1: Well, when you're done moving the goalposts, maybe we can (laughs) talk about this.
0: So kind of the same way that I said that, like, you know, for Mud Honey, really being like an above-average band in you know in a local scene is is a pretty good goal. I think you know having a pretty good song is also a pretty good goal, and this is a pretty good song. It's not great. It's not.
1: I don't even think it's a pretty good song. <laughs> I nearly. Yeah. Pause. Well, he
0: nearly <laughs> lost her, and then he has to stop and think about it.
1: I mean, honestly, my my thought was, how the hell did the Screaming Trees get on the soundtrack? <laughs> like,
0: I think they got on the soundtrack by having... I, I think there's two things. Like, they have a fucking great name. Like, you cannot deny the power of the Screaming Trees. I mean, clearly and,
1: Nirvana told them to piss off, right?
0: I... So, what? I was reading something about that. that. Like, the timing of this was weird, where Nirvana were... Kind of also ran as this was coming together, you know, like it was, it was before Nevermind. Like, like the thing came together before Nevermind came out, but was released after. So, oh, like gotcha. Nirvana's absence is weird in retrospect, but it made sense at the just, time.
1: Just imagine a universe where the Screaming Trees are a clear choice over Nirvana.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the the follow up to that, I guess, um, since Nirvana blew up before this was released, but after it was like like the studio sat on the movie for a while, and I guess was briefly pressuring Crow to rename the movie "Come as You Are," despite the total absence of any Nirvana. Um, I don't know, I mean, like like here's the thing here's the thing with the Screaming Trees like they're not great, but like.
1: Earlier you said this was a low-key banger.
0: Yeah, I don't stand by that, but, you know, like, it... Okay. Way back when we were talking about Uncle Tupelo, I had this framework where it was like Uncle Tupelo operated on a level that, you know, like, it's hard to imagine yourself, like, no matter how good you think you are you're not good enough to be in that band but i always liked the bottle rockets because they were quite good but you know they weren't like they weren't so inhumanly good like you could imagine yourself being in the bottle rockets the screaming trees are a band that i can easily imagine myself being in and you know there's something to that
1: that's I'm sure they would be pleased to know that they're a, that they're a for band, like, like, yeah. Maybe you can't get into the art other artists on this album, but you can sure as shit get the screaming trees to play your birthday party. Hey,
0: <laughs> you know, it's a, a niche is a niche.
1: I think we're gonna I think we're gonna have to agree to disagree on this. Fair enough. You just. You just signed up for your birthday present for the rest of your life.
0: <laughs> you know, man, I, I I will happily have the wall of honor for "Screaming Trees 45s." It's a good
1: song. <laughs> it's not that good a song. I mean, it's no overblown.
0: It's a better song than "Overblown." I I disagree. Oh man, you are you are wrong. <laughs> Uh,
1: Speaking of disagreement, the uh, last song is Drown and yes. Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, yes. Which I think deploys. I mean, if you're able to set apart the fact that Billy Corrigan is kind of an asshole, not a kind of an asshole, he is an asshole and sort of a tyrant. Yeah. I mean, I think this song does a good job of deploying his tools.
0: I agree. I like Drown. Like, I like it a lot. And, like, when this when this CD came out, I was like, oh, wow, these, these Smashing Pumpkin guys, got to keep an eye on them. This is something. And, you know, to me, like, this excuse me, it's a weird time because I like this song but it just feels like all this unrealized potential of a band I could have liked, but
1: and I mean, I think you have to get you just and this was hard for me in the 90s was, you know, when you see a live performance, it's just a different thing because yeah. they can't stack a hundred guitar tracks on top of each other and make right. that You know, if you listen to Siamese Dream like one of the reasons it sounds cool is because they've got all these guitar tracks on top of each other, yeah. and you just they, they they don't replicate that live, so it, it just is a different-sounding thing.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's weird, like, I I didn't like Siamese Dream when it came out, but I, I, I can't figure out why, because on paper, I should have. Um, you know, like, I love huge guitar sounds, and I even like it when people do crazy studio shit and, and like I wish I could I wish I could claim some kind of like well I, I could tell that Billy Corgan was an asshole but like it's not that it's just I think like I saw a picture of him wearing a shirt that I didn't like and was like well okay the hell with that
1: I mean I just I, I guess I have trouble separating so I have this vivid memory of my freshman year in college like studying for finals and listening to Siamese Dream over and over again. It's uh. like, as, you know, the universe was trying to tell me that I didn't want to be an engineering student, I was not, <laughs> like, willing to listen. It's very relatable. Turns out, I, I just don't care about differential equations. I'm sorry.
0: That, that... I, I don't care. That is the exact point where I stepped off the trolley, too.
1: So... It, it, it sort of—I don't know—it has yeah. a, it has this sort of place in my heart as a—and I mean, Drown's not even on Dream, so I don't know—but yeah. it's uh, it, it has this like—I uh, don't know—it just has this like uh, the the band has this has this place for that album, totally. Uh, you know the kind of what, and it, it's weird because I think for most people, a little younger than us their sort of Smashing Pumpkins touchstone is Infinite Sadness. Yeah. Um, and even though that came out when I was, like, a junior in college, it just isn't the same.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's one thing I love just about music is the way it tangles itself around with your memories. And, you know, like, yeah, just like some... Time in your life will get tangled up with some album in a way that like means a shitload to you and is completely inaccessible to anybody else. And like I just I love that. Like that's that that that's the best part of this. I think. Do
1: you have a, an example of Screaming Trees album that did that for you?
0: <laughs> I, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just just sitting around fantasizing. You know what band could I be in? I could be in the Screaming Trees. Well, I mean, you could be in a lot of bands.
1: I mean, you, I mean the, if you're willing to set the bar low enough, I mean, I mean, you could be in Parliament. There are like 400 people in Parliament.
0: <laughs> I don't think I could be in Parliament. I think they, I, I think there are 400 people, but there are four. It's like the G.I. Joe team, where they're all specialists who are the best at their little niche. You
1: yeah. could be in one of those Paul Simon videos with, like, the... <laughs> I could Rattling home? You could be in YouTube for that era, like. Cause... I could not. <laughs>
0: uh, I think uh, I'd make the newspapers if I tried.
1: <laughs> Guys, we got to talk about some of these songs.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, anything else on any particular songs? Or?
1: Um. No, but I mean, I think we should try to get ahead. We should try to get a hold of uh, of the reissue, which appears to have eighteen bonus tracks,
0: yeah, so I was reading about that, and I didn't listen to it at all, but it sounds the impression I got is that if you listen to that, you kind of wind up hearing a lot more Chris Cornell influence on the whole thing than than is apparent.
1: You do get uh, you do get a couple live Westerberg, you get Dyslexic Heart acoustic, and Waiting for Somebody acoustic, which I think would be interesting. Yeah. You uh, you do get a lot of yeah you do get a lot of uh, Chris Cornell, though.
0: which like I don't think I appreciated Chris Cornell enough when he was alive. Like I I liked Soundgarden, but I you know I always felt kind of sheepish about it and like. I guess now I I think like pretty talented guy like like yeah he has you know you can hear his voice and think like oh it's kind of gimmicky that he sings like that but I, I don't think so like that's just that's the way he sings and it he uses it well and it's good
1: so this is a red flag uh, on the Wikipedia entry the uh, so just think about the instead of the Led Zeppelin cover or the or the uh, you know the shitty Jimi Hendrix song we could have had little girl by muddy waters dig for fire by the pixies these songs are in the movie I remember dig for fire being. and there. radio song by by R.E.M. and blue train by John Coltrane how oh, much better like don't fit with the Seattle song yeah found. Yeah. But much better song.
0: I, personally, I, I feel like Westerberg axed the R.E.M. songs because he hates just, R.E.M. Just
1: a personal grudge.
0: Yeah, I know, because they're fighting. So you know what hit me as you were saying that, though? Like, I I can't believe I didn't twig to this earlier. How wild is it that there's this album that was put forward as, like, this is the generational musical statement for musically aware people who are in Gen X. And I don't remember exactly how many tracks there are, like, 11-ish. Two of them, so around 20%, are either, like, boomer-era recordings or boomer-era bands covering another boomer-era band. Like, like... We were so in the fucking shadow of the boomers that like our generational statement is still like twenty percent Hendrix and then heart covering Led Zeppelin. Like I
1: absolute travesty.
0: I don't know. <laughs> that, that's my uh, that's my profound statement for the.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, at some point, someone should do a like a nineties, you know, like. Uh, a 90s dorm room kit where you get oh god you, know, you get like like here's your two liter of crystal Pepsi and uh you know here's your Bob Marley legend CD your you know, single soundtrack no alternative nevermind Pearl Jam 10 and you're like just, just yeah. like what would that look like? Here's what would it. that curated box look like? A
0: Zima and a Jolly Rancher, delicious. Some Red Dog. Um, so I've got, I've got notes here at the bottom. Um, you know, I always try to get us to name a favorite song. What was your favorite song on this? Oh, That's a good question. I
1: mean i want to say state of love and trust is my favorite song on here because i i do think that's a really good song but it may be it may actually be the smashing pumpkin song just because i like the way that i like the way that uh that uh billy corrigan uses his voice in that song fair enough you
0: uh waiting for somebody all the way
1: it's not screaming trees uh,
0: they are a perfectly fine band I... Waiting for somebody though, it's a jam. It is a <laughs> it is it would have been the best song on All Shook Down.
1: Boy, that's high praise. <laughs> it
0: that's... would have been in the top third of Don't Tell us
1: so. It's Like, yeah. Would have been the best drink on a deserted island.
0: <laughs> <laughs> would have been in the middle of Please to Meet Me. Um, and then also just overall verdict on you know so usually I'm looking for overall verdict on the album but here like I did frame this
1: as overall verdict on the 90s yeah you know putting Gen X on trial well I mean Gen X has a lot of flaws as someone who's the tail end of Gen X I mean I think I think there are some good songs but I think as you said I, I think it is not really as much of a as sort of a time capsule of that era that I thought it was yeah um, I think you probably could uh, could accomplish similar things with uh, you know, with with just a sampler of uh, Pearl Jam Nirvana Soundgarden.
0: yeah I you know if I if I'm gonna do a verdict I, I will say I pronounced Generation X guilty on, uh, on two counts: one of poor taste, and uh, one of succumbing to hype. Honestly, and maybe that's why we got so suspicious afterwards, like as a as a reaction. Um, that's all I got for this. Does that say part. outro? That says outro.
1: What a professional! I
0: I you know what? I'm a seasoned <laughs> podcast man man. man. <laughs> That's right. This uh, this this polished pattern doesn't just happen. That's right. It's
1: right. It's a deeply. Oh, uh, yes.
0: oh yes. Wow! I turned Irish when I'm laughing. Oh, Begura. Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Pick pick an ethnicity. Like one day it's one day it's Australian or bust, and then.
0: I'm am a citizen of the world. Uh, okay, do you have a next album for us?
1: <laughs> I do, uh, because I want to get weird. Oh, bring it. So we are gonna we are gonna detail and talk about the backstory for the uh, Jim Sullivan album UFO. Oh fuck. Okay. So prepare yourselves. I'm ready to stare into the heart. That's right. The Cosmic Cowboy. <laughs> Excellent.
0: Um, in the meantime, uh, and, and, and we will try, I, I'm going to go on record as, you know, to, to not have a six-month gap in between.
1: <laughs> oh. There are some, ex- there's some uh, circumstances.
0: Absolutely. That kind of. We're both working at different jobs yeah. than we were um, when the last episode came out. and Other stuff has happened. Uh, in the meantime, so that that'll come soon, ish. Um, in The meantime, I am Keith Pilly. You can find me on Twitter at Keith Pilly, um, and
1: and I'm Chad Cook, and you can find me on Twitter at at Cook six two five two
0: at. You're an ad ad. Um, yeah, let us know if I you wish I was an ad ad. Uh, they oh. fall down easy. It falls down easy on Hoth. They so I watched Rogue One recently, and I noticed that like when X Wings are fighting them, they just like house the AT-ATs immediately.
1: You're just seeing <laughs> rebel propaganda, dude. <laughs> Fair
0: enough. Is <laughs> um, anything you uh, uh, anything you take issue with here or like? Please, uh, I like like I sincerely want to know. Let us know um, if you are into the show and. Uh, have faith that it will come out again soon. <laughs> Please tell people about it, or uh, you know, go wherever you found it and leave a review. And uh, yeah, thanks. We will talk to you again soon. Uh, as we as we get weird. That's right. I know. Yes.